We'll be in Matthew 16. I'm going to read verses 21 through 27. Verses 21 through 27. Let me read it and then we'll pray together. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things that concern God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet they forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. I want to hone in on that a little bit today. He's going to reward each person according to what they have done. Let's pray. Lord, would you please lead us through this all-important scripture? It's a famous scripture, but it's a difficult scripture. It's kind of a, it's very much counterintuitive for us and a foreign concept for us in our world and our culture to see this. Would you help us unpack it? Would you help us get our minds around it? And would you help us apply it to how we live and how we do things and how we think of ourselves and all of those things? God, give us this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This is a very, like I just prayed, this is a very challenging scripture and a very telling conversation in the biography of Jesus because it straightly tells us Jesus' thoughts about what it means to be a disciple. The word is mathetes in the Greek. The better translation is apprentice. What it means to follow Jesus and to learn from him and what, and what it means for all generations, even for us in the, 21st, in the 21st century. Jesus, at this point, was ministering in his ministry very powerfully, but also very controversially. He was a polarizing figure. There were people who were following him, but there was also people who were hating him and were starting to plot against him. In fact, just before this, he just got in a uh, a major confrontation and row with, these, with the religious folks, the religious leaders of his day. And the disciples themselves at this point, they're having a hard time wrapping their minds around Jesus, even the disciples, because they went into following him with certain ideas of what it meant to follow him. I really have no fault to their own. Just like us, they grew up in a certain way, and there were certain things that they that kind of were part of their culture that even without thinking about it were major assumptions to what it meant to follow Jesus. And Jesus is fulfilling some of them, as we're gonna see, but he's also radically departing from some of these ideas. And the religious leaders and Jesus' disciples are kind of, uh, in the background, kind of, they're feeling themselves challenged. Okay, this is not what I thought. This is not who I thought. This is not the way I thought it would go down. And so in order for Jesus to spend some time with his disciples, he takes them away. He takes them to um, Caesarea Philippi. Um, That's where this conversation takes place. 
And he takes them away from the ministry, from the hustle and the bustle, from meeting all of these needs, from these gigantic crowds up in Galilee. He pulls the disciples aside to kind of get some things straight, to help them understand a little more fully about what it means to follow him and what it will take to follow him. In the preceding verses to our passage, Jesus criticized the disciples of being ignorant, unbelieving, and forgetful. Right before this, he criticizes his own crew of saying, hey, you're being naive, okay? You're being, and you have a lack of faith. In other words, you're looking at the world too small. There's um, compartments that you're looking at or a grid that you're looking at the world by. It's causing you to have unbelief. I want you to widen your view. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step away from some of these ideas. And I think something that really applies to us is that they are forgetful. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, just to yourself, be honest. I think this is a, a thing where you read the Bible or maybe you listen to a sermon or maybe you're inspired by something and then maybe a day later you've forgotten really all about it or maybe the same day you've forgotten all about it or maybe the next morning. Um, I do better at night. So there's been times in my life with the Lord that I am just getting something at night and my, I just feel so inspired and I, I just, like a light bulb comes on and then the next morning I wake up and I haven't had my coffee yet. And this is really true of my life. And it's like I, I'm cynical, I'm angry, I'm, you know, all of these, because I just haven't woken up yet. And, I for, and it, my heart overnight just got, went from soft to hard. <laughs> I just naturally stray. Uh, I forget. Um, we'll spend a, a time in a week or two in, in the book of James of a passage there where he says it's like beholding your face in a mirror and going away and forgetting who you are. It's called spiritual amnesia. We have this thing. Well, the disciples were going through this too. And so Jesus withdraws them from Galilee kind of on a retreat and he tries to get some things right with these guys. Jesus has been talking about what it looks like up to this point to be called by God and this morning Jesus is going to tell his disciples what is required of those who dare to answer his call. This is you, if you're, I mean, presumably, if you're sitting in these seats, if you've come to church, if you're a part of this church, it is, it is, it's got to be more than because of a convenient location. For some of you, I know that is just straight up not true. It's not a convenient location, and yet you still come. Or it's got to be more than people that you like going here are going here. That's a good reason, but it can't be the only reason. The reason that you're here and the reason that I am here and the reason we are giving our lives to this thing called Christianity is because we've decided to answer a call on our life. Every one of you at some point, it went beyond intellectual to hearing a call, a personal call, I want you to follow me. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is going to explain a few things. This morning, first, he's going to hone in what our greatest obstacle is to following him. Why is it that we get caught in ignorance? Why do we forget? Why? So he's going to tell us what that is. 
Secondly, he's going to tell us what it's required to be a disciple. What the, not particulars, we'll get into that in weeks to come, but he's going to talk about the overall posture of a disciple, the posture of your heart, the attitude, if you will, or the, the ethos by which you look at yourself and you look at the world, the inner system, the inner spirit of a disciple of Jesus. What's our posture? Thirdly, he's going to talk about how it's possible, what it means to follow him. What does that actually mean? It's very different than anything we've got going on here when it comes to education. It's really tough for a Westerner in the 21st century to wrap our mind around what it means to follow a person as an apprentice. We'll get into that. And finally, he's going to talk about why. Why would we even want to? Okay? First, Jesus asks them two questions. You noticed. Who do people say that I am? And then secondly, who do you say that I am? The first question, they reported that the, what the people were saying. You remember the conversation. They said, well, we're hearing reports that people think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. You remember at this point, John the Baptist had um, been beheaded. Um, he had been killed by Herod. And Jesus is going around basically taking up the baton of where uh, John the Baptist left off, and he is continued that ministry except enhanced it. So people are thinking, man, he's very John the Baptist-esque. Maybe, maybe, the, maybe it is him. But also people are thinking it's Elijah, they report. Also some are saying it's Jeremiah. And then Jesus asked the second question, but who do you think? I want to know what you guys are thinking. I can tell that you're wondering. I can tell that you're curious. What role am I Am I, am I fulfilling apocalyptically? Where do I fit in the plan of, God, of God's plan for the earth? And that's when, you know, the famous Peter pipes up and says, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. I, he says, I, this, is, this is what I really think. I think you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And, you know, bells go off. Jesus says, yes. Peter, he, Jesus basically confirms it. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, you, this is not something that you came to a conclusion of by yourself. God the Father revealed it to you, showed you through special revelation that yes, this is who I am. I am the Christ, the one you've been waiting for, the one that you've been learning about, Peter, since you were bouncing around on your mom's knee. She's been telling you about a Messiah, an anointed one that would come from the line of David and would do what we're longing for a leader to do. What we need, what mankind needs is the Messiah, the Jewish people were being told. All, everyone knew about that. Everyone was waiting for the Messiah. This is me. Jesus compliments Peter. Jesus claims that, he, that Peter is the rock of his church, and there's major controversy even today about what that even means. And Jesus rewards Peter with keys. He talks about these keys. They'll come up again in Matthew 18. These keys that whatever Peter would unlock here on earth would be unlocked in heaven, and whatever he would bind on earth or restrain on earth would have a similar effect in heaven. So we're talking, whatever that means, we know at least it means power and authority 
is given to Peter, who represents the church, you and me. Disciples are given power and authority. You need to remember that for us to understand. You have been given as a follower of Jesus. If you stand on the rock that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one we've been waiting for, Jesus says, you've been given keys, all of you, that what you unlock here on earth, how you deal with things on earth will have a similar effect in heaven. It's not unrelated to how God's going to treat it in heaven. Again, really vague, really mysterious. But what we know is we've been given power and authority. Now, right after that, verse 21, after all of that, that's where we pick up our passage. Verse 21 picks up. From that time on, Jesus began to explain his... So after that bit, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, his mathetes, his apprentices, that he must go to Jerusalem. So here's the plan, you guys. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. So after he finally reveals himself, after his identity is known, I am the one, it is me, I am going to redeem the world, then he says, here's how, gather around. You can just picture him kind of, like they're thinking, we're on the inner, inner circle here. We're getting it. This is, this is the Messiah This is the kingdom of God, and Jesus says, he gives them the plan. He says, okay, here's how it's going to go down, you guys. This is how I'm going to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. What kind of things would they be thinking? He's going to, this is how he's going to take out Rome. This is how he's going to reform the religious establishment that's so corrupt. This is how he's going to take the seat on David's throne. So they're all waiting for these presumptions, these things that they have learned not to question about the Messiah in their minds. Things that they've been grown up, that they grew up learning about the Messiah. They're waiting to hear all of this, and yet out comes out of Jesus' mouth. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're like, yes, good. David's, that's the city of David. And they're expecting him to say, I'm going to sit on a throne or lead an army in there. He says, I'm going to die on a cross. He tells them the plan, and they don't like it. They don't like it at all. They're not into it. In fact, it would have been an absolute shock to them. They just had this this epiphany that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, and then he says, I'm going to die. To the point... You know, this can't be the plan. To the point that Peter, feeling pretty, um, this newfound confidence in himself after his last statement of figuring out that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, Peter says, I'm going to pull Jesus aside and talk some sense into him here. I'm going to encourage my brother who's, you know, he's discouraged right now. Every leader of a movement gets discouraged sometimes. Just pull him aside and I will lift him up, you know. He's Frodo and I'm Sam. I'm there to help. So he pulls him aside and he says, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. And he says, he pulls him aside and he says, never, Lord. I can just picture Jesus getting in, Peter getting in Jesus' face. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. This is not the plan. You're not going to do that. That's not a good plan. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, You stumble me. 
You're a stumbling block for me, Peter. In other words, you're not helping right now, Peter. You are, make, you are, you are actually trying, to, something evil is trying to get me to get off this plan, and it's happening through you. And here's your problem, he goes on. Look what he says. He diagnoses Peter's problem. Here's your problem. You do not, so there's something demonic, and here's why. Because you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So think of this. Peter, I've given you power and authority. I've given you these keys, and you're gonna screw it up because you're too busy thinking about yourself. I think this is really... Uh, this goes out to all disciples. We've got this power. What hinders us? Self. Only thinking about ourselves. You're concerned with what fallen humanity would be concerned with, Peter. Not the things of God. That's what's holding you back. That's the little thing that can stop you from wielding this power correctly this authority correctly. You're so stuck on how you think things ought to go. You're so proud. Jesus knew that there was a satanic purpose in discouraging him in his ministry on the way to the cross. And Jesus is not going to allow that purpose to succeed. So he shuts Peter down pretty forcefully and teaches a very strong lesson at the same time. In other words, Peter, when you're focused on yourself you need to understand this. Let me put it very strongly. When you're focused on yourself, something satanic is going on. Have you thought of it that way before in your own life? It's really interesting, isn't it, to think of it? It's, this should be um, kind of eerie. He's not saying that Peter is Satan. That's not what he's trying to say. He's not even saying necessarily that Peter is possessed. I don't think that's what he's saying. But the idea is that self gives Satan a way in, a breach in the wall, a weakness in the armor, a way in to cause temptation, to plant a seed, to start an idea that will, if watered and fertilized properly, can grow into something very destructive that can even thwart, in this case, a redemptive plan. But Jesus is privy to this. And notice here that Peter is totally and utterly deceived. He is acting with the greatest of intentions, no doubt. Notice this. He, doesn't, he has no awareness that Satan or something evil is involved in his good intentions. He really thinks he's being helpful. I think this proves that people can be used for evil and Christians can be used for evil without knowing it. That we can be sincere and yet be sincerely wrong. Sincerely wrong. In this passage, Jesus is telling us that the devil or evil has strongholds in our lives or influences over us or can kind of thwart the power and authority that God has given us to enter into the good life and to be powerful agents of him here in this world um, because we get wrapped up in ourselves. And it's so subtle how we do this. Like Peter, it's all wrapped up in our um, godly presumptions and assumptions of what we've 
been taught or what we think we've been taught or the, the things that we that maybe come with Christian culture and those types of things, they are deceptive because they're wrapped up in Christianese. To the degree, in other words, the Bible throughout, and this is really from the beginning when you study evil from the very Genesis chapter 3, all the way throughout, there is a relationship between evil and humans, always. Did you know that? This is just, this should trip you out. It's not, we, I think, maybe I'll speak for you. I think that we usually think that evil is like one box over here, and then there's us, and sometimes we're selfish, and we do bad things and evil things, but not necessarily that the two are connected. The Bible would say, no, no, you need to understand there is always a degree of, of a symbiotic kind of a relationship between our selfishness, our waywardness, and some kind of evil entity. Are you freaked out yet? Good, I think. I think good. To the degree of how selfish we are, to that degree, evil has power over us, in our families, in society. It might show up in just stunting our growth and our power and authority in our own lives, causing us to languish, or like the disciples here, um, cause forgetfulness. They're hit, they basically hit a ceiling. They can't follow Jesus anymore because they're just... because. Pe- so Jesus basically takes them aside and he says, hey, I'm the Christ and here's your problem. You all are being very selfish. And because of that, the enemy is present. The enemy is present. If you are more of a, um, what C.S. Lewis calls a substitious person, that means underbelief in spiritual things, Okay. If you're substitious, then you can't hear what Jesus is saying here. There's a devil, and he's trying to kill you. We don't think that way, do we? Usually, I think uh, our culture primarily is probably more substitious. We live in a scientific world. Um, we don't believe in something unless we can sense it with our five senses, unless there's proof, that type of thing. So we don't, we don't get weirded out by this, but the Bible says something very different. So it's hard for us. We, kind of, we kind of roll our eyes and go, oh, gosh, ancient people. You know, they thought there was a boogeyman everywhere. Or if we're more uh, superstitious, on the other hand, if we're in the soup, that's overbelief in the supernatural realm, you think the devil is everywhere. I actually knew a, a woman once, or actually I was at her barbecue, and the barbecue wouldn't work, and she uh, proceeded to cast out the demon that was in the barbecue. I thought she was kidding. I, I started laughing because I thought it was a joke. Turns out, she got really offended at me because she was totally serious. <laughs> it was a moment I was like, oh, you really, you really mean this, okay? You know, that's superstitious. To deal with the devil, basically, the Bible would say to deal with the devil is first to deal with our own self, to deal with our own sin. Get rid of the footholds. Get rid of the ways he controls us. I love this quote by William, um, William Gurnall. He says this, if men hear a noise at night, they cry out, the devil, the devil, and they run for their life. But they carry around the devil, they carry around the devil around in their very hearts all day long. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, 
You are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from your pride crying, the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentment and your grudges yelling, the devil, the devil? Run from them in terror, he says. It would do us good to see that our, these attitudes that we sometimes feel entitled to have are so very, very dangerous. So the way to deal with evil and to stop our growth from being stunted is number one, to deal with self. Self, but how? So Jesus is saying, again, here's what it means to be a disciple. Here's what it means to follow. You've got to deal with yourself. How? Well, Jesus gives the disciples the inner attitude. Here it is. Whoever wants to be my mathetes, my disciple, my apprentice, here's what it takes. Here's the attitude someone must have. Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Remember, he just told them that he's going to a cross, that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's saying, I'm expecting you to come with me. This is to be your way of life, your way of thinking, your attitude. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will end up losing it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? That's the word psyche in the Greek, and that means yourself, your, your whole person. In other words, Jesus is saying, yourself is so valuable, much more valuable than all the riches and gold that this world can, can give to you, and there's a sense that in order to get those things, you have to cater to yourself. You've got to put everyone else down to get to the top. It was bad enough at this point, so hear this, this meeting, here's what it means to be a disciple. It's bad enough to hear that their leader, they just found out Jesus is the Christ. He's going to go die on a cross. That was, I mean, that was already, Peter's not having it. But then Jesus says further, not only am I doing this, but in a sense, in a sense, you all need to have this attitude in you and you need to live this way. You need to live this way. The only way to deal with self is self-denial, and that's going to feel like death. This is very hard for us to get because yourself, um, if you haven't noticed, you're, you don't want to die. Most of us instinctually do not go willingly to our own death. Even on a biological level, when someone um, in ways commit suicide. They, they have to tie their hands together because their body at some point will kick in. They'll start swimming or they'll try to get out. It's a, the impulse for life is it's hardwired in to preserve the self. To the modern person and in the modern world, the only true sin is to deny yourself in our world today. Everything else is acceptable and permissible. This is one of the biggest problems that our culture has with Christianity. Everyone ought to be free to express themselves the way they feel, the, the way they, feel they should. And if 
Christianity or anything else comes along and says, no, you need to, you need to stifle your, your body. Or you, need, you know, I'm, I just officiated Eric and Victoria's wedding. I'm officiating another wedding today. And one of the problems that the world has about marriage is that you, biblical marriage is that we, the Bible measures love by how, you, how much you give of yourself rather than take. The Bible doesn't measure love by how much you want to consume of that other person, how much they make you happy, how much they make you feel good about yourself. The Bible measures love by how much you give of yourself for the benefit of somebody else. It's a very uh, difficult, in a consumer culture like ours, it's very difficult to understand that. We live in a world that uh, the late Tim Keller calls consumer relationships. In other words, I am in a relationship with a vendor as long as that vendor provides goods at a cost acceptable to me. But the, 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 the moment another vendor comes along and offers better goods or the same goods at a better price, I'm in no way obligated to stay with the original vendor. I can leave. That's how we treat relationships. Not just marriage, but friendships, if you haven't noticed in Seattle. It is a cost-benefits type of a thing. How much can I get, how much are you going to give to me? And the moment there's any sacrifice or duty involved, I might be out of here. It's risky. It's hard. Jesus is saying, I'm going to turn that upside down. In our world, being true to yourself is the chief virtue. And the Bible comes along and says, it's actually self that's caused evil in the world. All war, all suffering, all disease, all abuse, all slavery, all racism, all the destructive behavior of, of, of social society, all, all of that comes down to indulging self. If you guys want to follow in my footsteps, Jesus is saying, not only does it mean that I'm, that I'm going to be rejected, it also means that I'm, it doesn't mean that I'm heading for the cross. If you want to follow me, you must have that attitude as well. And look at the way Jesus says our self must die. He likens death to self to a Roman-style execution, to a cross. Everybody then did not look at the cross as like a piece of jewelry or a fashion statement. The cross wasn't a religious symbol. It didn't mean a philosophy or an ethos of life. It didn't mean any of those things. The cross meant one thing. It was, a, it was a sign of another nation's brutal authority and power to squash another nation. If you dissented against Rome, you would be, as a foreigner, you would be hung on a, you'd be nailed to a cross. It was the ugliest uh, thing that warped mankind's imagination could come up with on how to kill somebody. It was horrible. It was a long, excruciating death whereby the victim died in a slow and a shameful, embarrassing way. And it was public. Can you imagine Seattle under Rome and driving in along I-5 coming in, you would see people, your children, they didn't didn't give notices, hey, you might want to turn your kids' eyes away. It was right there for everyone to see, people dying on crosses, some dead, some on, on their way dying, as you're driving in to see it. Can you imagine that? And it, it, it sent a, a strong message 
That will be you if you so much as think a thought against Rome. This, is, this, was, this was Pax Romana, peace by force that the Roman government boasted of. We've achieved peace. And Jesus is saying, this is the life of a Christian. How can you say now? How can he say that? He's basically saying, if you want to follow me, then you walk, you walk down death road daily. They could those that those that were carrying the cross. It was always terrible. They knew they couldn't get out of it. If you were carrying a cross. You weren't thinking to yourself, okay, is there an escape route? If you had the cross and you're carrying it, you knew, and you're, mentally, you were already defeated. You knew this is it. There's no way out. There's no changing things. This is it. Do you want to know what it feels like to die to yourself? It feels like you're dying. That's what it feels like. <laughs> it's more than like an imposition. It's more than a distraction. It's more than an annoyance. When you give yourself for the betterment of others and for the glory of God, there is a, there is a piece of us that dies. It's excruciating. It's not fun. Well, how does this work? Well, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What they didn't understand, what they missed, and what we miss so often is that Jesus is talking about the way to real life or the way to a true self. What, what happened after Jesus died on the cross? He what? Three days later, let me give you a hint. He rose. In other words, he led a, the most victorious human life possible. Here's what we need to understand, and here's what, what gets us through this. Jesus lived a life. Think of this, and this is what we're going to get into with our church. Jesus lived a life that was attractive. Let me say this. Beyond, yes, Jesus healed people. Yes, there was these miracles. But let me just say something. People didn't want to follow Jesus simply because he was a magician that did these crazy uh, supernatural things. But it was Jesus lived the kind of quality of life that gave him the ability and power to break out of boundaries and restrictions and do these supernatural, incredible things. It wasn't like he was entertaining people. The idea was his life force was such that it could not be contained. His life force was such that disease would flee from it. His life force, the quality of his life was the kind of life where evil would flee, where people would, would be forgiven, where shame would be released, where, where death itself and the effects of death would run. That's the kind of, the quality of life, the moral buoyancy and, and weight that Jesus, when Jesus walked into a room, even before he healed anybody, there was something about Jesus that we will, we're going to study through the entire book of Matthew soon. There was something, we'll find out, there was something about Jesus that when you looked at him, when you saw him, you thought to yourself, people thought to themselves, 
you're living the kind of life that I was always meant to live. You're the kind of human we were all meant to be. There's something so alive and so powerful and so vibrant in you. See, the gospel is not, this is not the gospel. That there was this man named Jesus who was the son of God, but then they killed him, but then after that he rose from the dead. That sounds, it is that, but it's, let me put another spin on it. Let me perhaps put a more biblical spin on it. There was, a, there was a man named Jesus who was the ultimate human and he happened to be, and he was also God. And his life was so powerful that even death on a cross couldn't stop it. He lived this life of abundance that wasn't interrupted by death or wasn't stopped by death. It was, it blew through death on a cross. Even death, he conquered it. In other words, he was living the resurrected life even even before, the kind of life is what caused him to be resurrected. Does that make sense? And here's why this is important. When we chop it up, as we have done, we end up thinking this. Well, our life here on earth is toil and gruesome and filled with suffering, and it's horrible, and we really can't say anything about it, and, you know, we're here in this world that doesn't follow Jesus, and we're kind of on our heels, and we, we have to kind of get through and survive and kind of make it, but someday, after we die, we're going to die, and someday, then, in heaven, after our death, after that, then we can live this resurrected life in heaven where we'll get new bodies and all this stuff. And what does that do to us as a church, as followers of Jesus? It makes us live impotent, unpowerful, unauthoritative lives right now. Now hear me. Is life still filled with suffering? Yes, just like with Jesus. But he said, follow me. In fact, arguably, Jesus' day was worse. We don't have, last I checked, I have not seen a crucified person on my drive into Seattle. (laughs) We're not gonna get crucified for following Jesus here, right? But Jesus lived such an abundant life in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that corruption, it was that the, the gospel writers describe him as a light that shone in pitch black darkness. That some people went, ooh, and some people went, oh, I can see. And Jesus is saying, that's the kind of life Come follow me. That's the kind of life I want you to live in Seattle in the 21st century. A life that is so full and so powerful and so vibrant and so good that it transcends suffering and transcends hardship and transcends all of the things that you and I are facing. That we're not a people on our heels, but we're living in this abundant life now. John 10.10, Jesus said, I came to give life and give it abundantly. He was talking about right now. Have you entered into the abundant life? As a follower of Jesus, are you living in the fullness of what it means to be human? I'm not, but boy, I want to. And you know what? I've come to believe that it's available right now, and I want it. I want it, and I want us to do it together. I want us to enter it in together, little by little, by following him. So how do we do it? Well, first of all, in other words, he's saying, if you want the kind of wonderful, amazing resurrection life that I have right now, it come, you can't skip the crucifixion. Paradoxically, it comes 
when you die to yourself, that power, that authority, that power that he said the church would have, the keys that would unlock and lock, that comes from having a posture of, I'm going to, it's not about me. I came to give, not just to receive. He's saying, that's my secret. It's the, good, it's the way to the good life. The gospel changes not just what you do, but why you do it. What does it matter? Well, you could say, and this is what a lot of, the other way, when we think of Jesus as kind of compartmentalized, we end up saying things like, hey, you should be honest. We tell our kids that. You should be honest. And they should. It's true. But here's another way. Honesty is the glory of what it means to be truly free. You don't have to hide anymore. You can be open and honest. You can be a free person, transparent, and it doesn't matter if anyone shames you, you can rise above that. Because isn't that why we lie? Why do we embellish? Why do we minimize? Why do we exaggerate? We're hiding something. Now, we could, as Christians, come to our children and come to others and say, you should tell the truth. And we, they should. They should. Or we can say, you get to tell the truth. You don't have to hide anymore. You can be the fullest human and be open and out loud. You, you, you could say, hey, you should forgive your enemies. Christians should forgive their enemies. Or you are now free from resentment and the poison that's eating you alive inside of the hatred and the anger. You get to be free from that. It's killing you. That grudge that you're holding, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. <laughs> it's killing you. You're free. You can forgive. That's what it means to be fully human. See what he's saying? This is how I live. Follow me. This is how I live so big. This is why my life is so powerful. This is why I have such authority. You shouldn't lust. Or now you're free to love and to give and to view people as human, not as a commodity to, to gratify your, your passions and your, your physical appetites. You can look at, you can rejoin the human race and get to know people. And love them. Do you see the difference in motive? The gospel changes that. It's not just shoulds and should nots. It's freedom. It's the laws. The true law is what it means to be truly human. It's what it means to be a mago day, made in the glory of God. The cross was the only way to bring new life to mankind. He had to go to death, and he says, follow me. We only have newness of life, his resurrection life, to the degree that we've died to ourselves. But don't miss the, in other words, what I'm saying is, you can die to yourself to, to the degree that you know it's gonna bring you into fullness of joy. Hebrews says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured cross, suffering, self-denial. In other words, he didn't just do it as 
Well, to redeem the world, I'm going to have to die. It was to get the joy, to come into the joy. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Christianity, you guys, as we'll discover coming up, is more of a, it's, it's really, you know, it's really is less spiritual than what we might think. It is spiritual, but it's more common. It really, it's common sense. Anything worth doing requires, requires self-sacrifice, right? I don't know, um, any, any athlete, anybody that's accomplished championships, someone in the UFC, just, just uh, Sean O'Malley just became the world champion um, and I don't know if you saw it, Scott, but what he said afterwards in the post-fight was he said, look, you guys only see me in a ring for 25 minutes. And you see my Porsche and my house and all my money, and you think that's it. He goes, but here's what you need to understand. I started kickboxing when I was 16 years old. And I dedicated my soon. I went to two-a-days. I went to the gym twice a day, every day. And I found people that would beat me up every day so I could go in there and win. He said, I've dedicated my life to these 25 minutes so I could become champion. In other words, what did he say? He said, I knew in my head that I was a champion. So I did, I died to myself. I denied myself certain things so I could realize it. Honestly, I think the same applies to our spiritual lives. Jesus has said, you are, you have the new life. Reckon your old man dead and come into the newness of life. You are a child of God. But if Sean O'Malley figured out that I'm a champion, but he sat on his couch all day and ate pizza, you'd start to wonder, you're forgetting something. You're ignorant, you've got unbelief, and you've forgotten something. Because he's not, he's not going to make it that way. Who you are, you guys, demands that you live a certain way, that we practice certain things to come into who we are, to realize who we are. That's how faith and works come together. We can participate. Let me put it this way. You've been converted, but you are being transformed. Do you understand that? You've been converted. You are a, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God, but you are being transformed day by day. And how you, how we follow him dictates that. We participate in that life. And it starts with a posture. I'm going to deny myself to come into this championship that I know I am, that I know that God has given to me. And we'll get into this, we're going to get into the specifics of all of that soon. Let's all stand together. Lord, would you empower us to follow you? Would you, Lord, nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to um, die to self just for the sake of dying for self. But Lord, what we do want is the fullness of life you promise, is the resurrection life that you promise. You told Peter, you are the rock of the church. I don't even know exactly what you meant by that. But you told him you're the rock of the church and then you told him how to realize it. Here's how you come into it. 
follow me. I'm going to, I've come, you said elsewhere, not to be served, but to serve, to give my life a ransom for many. That's the way into the good life, into the abundant life that you've promised us. God, would you please make that so attractive to us? And I pray that you would make our ignorance, our unbelief, and our forgetfulness something that we're not comfortable in anymore. May we just be not comfortable in our lethargy, in our boredom, in our sleepiness. May we say, I want it. I want the good life. I want it now. Lord, stir that in us. Because it's all the death to self is worth it. The pros of having that fullness of life far outweigh the sacrifices along the way. God, would you do that in our church and make us a culture that Calvary Wallingford would be a place where we're following you, where we're following after the prize, following in your footsteps. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.